I want to first express my appreciation to uh, Dr. Timothy George over at Beeson for alerting us to the fact that Richard Buse would be uh, in uh, the country from England and he would be here. Uh, he called and wanted to know if we had a slot open for him and just delighted to give him uh, the dean's class. So I know it's been a busy time for you. It's been a busy visit, uh, but we uh, just so appreciate uh, you coming to the Advent this morning uh, uh, to be with us. Let me just uh, read here uh, some things that you may or may not know. Uh, Dr. Buse received his undergraduate degree from Cambridge and prepared for his ministry uh, at Ridley Hall in Cambridge. 1974, he was appointed by the Crown as rector of All Souls Church in London and stepped down in 2004. That's 30 years. That's 30 years. He was awarded the OBE by the Queen of England in 2005. Of course, you all know what the OBE is, right? That is the Order of British Empire. There's not much empire left. <clears throat> not much empire left. Well, <laughs> that certainly looks impressive on your, on your resume. Even though I didn't know what it meant, I knew it was impressive. He was a teacher, preacher, pastor, broadcaster, hymn writer, Christian communicator. He's written over 200 books, including uh, The Lamb Wins, uh, a book that I'm familiar with uh, and thoroughly recommend, The Top 100 Questions of Beginning the Christian Life, and also a new book here that, at least uh, new to me, The Stone That Became a Mountain, Richard Buse. This morning, he will speak on facing a new Christian era. Dr. Buse, thank you for being with us, sir. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, honored senior brother. It's wonderful to be with you. I must have a prayer with you before we do anything. Lord Jesus Christ, Master of the universe, our Savior, our Lord, we thank you for the church worldwide that you have created we thank you for the blessed Holy Spirit who does his work in country after country and we are thankful to be part of this great family. Bless us now, we pray, as we think together around your word and Lord Jesus, Master, may we come under your banner afresh today. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, what an honor to see you, friends. Thank you very much indeed. My dear wife Pam was dying to come with me uh, I, as a widower, I married her, a widow, uh, nine months ago today. And so we were talking on the phone and reminiscing on these last uh, electric nine months for us. Neither of us ever had ever planned to marry again, but there we are. We had known each other, our two couples, for about 40 years. And so it's a wonderful thing. So Jim Pounds of Beeson School of Divinity said to me, well, there's always another opportunity. So I hope that she'll come one day, perhaps, and be able to see you. What I thought we would do, then, is to take this theme of facing a new pre-Christian era. And for our reading, well, let's, I don't know if you have Bibles with you, but I'll read a tiny bit. What have I got here? I've got the, actually the, the old King James Version. And I'll read a little bit here from chapter 17. If I can find 16, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the 
devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others said, He seems to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what is this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Well, there's Paul then. He stands up in the Areopagus and he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. I love it. Hey, was there anything more unpretentious, more unimpressive, really, when I look at this passage, than Christianity's first entrance into Europe? In Acts 16, Paul arrives with his few friends, and they've never been into Europe before. Here is Christianity coming for the first time ever, and they sit by the riverside where some women have gathered together with, uh, de of devout disposition, and he explains the good news to them. A few of them believe, among them one person called Lydia, who's in the rag trade, and she becomes a follower of Christ. She invites them to, his, to her house. That's the first ever house group, the home group in all of Europe. And, and Luke has faithfully recorded that for us. It's wonderful. Then, after the preaching, there's trouble, of course, in Philippi. And Paul has to make a run for it. They go. And then they move on, of course, to Thessalonica. And they end up at Jason's house. Group number two. House group number two. Riots take place there. It was a big city. Cicero said, it is placed in the bosom of our empire. It was a very proud city. But then there's trouble there. They move on. And they go to Berea, where they're much better received. Chapter 10, verse uh, verse 10 following. Then they come now, chapter 17, verse 16 onwards, here they are in Athens. Anyone ever here been to Athens? Let me have a look. Oh yeah, a number I've been to. Well, here in the West, friends, I think you might agree that we are becoming more and more like Athens was in Acts chapter 17. When you move into, well, Leicester Square in London, England, you look around, you find yourself rubbing shoulders with just about every kind of group and oddball society going. <laughs> and that's what it was like in Athens. Paul arrives and his, his soul is indignant. He's not taking photographs of all the idolatry, not at all. He's weeping. And he's indignant about it. Well, we are becoming more like that. And in our understanding, therefore, of the Christian message, Let's try and transplant ourselves a little bit mentally, if we can, to Athens of Paul's day. First of all, the novelty of it, as Paul arrives. They've never seen anything like it. By the way, if I leave time enough, let's save up for a few questions at the end. I may not leave time enough, because I was born in East Africa. And in Africa, when you're speaking, the sky is the limit. You can go on forever. <laughs> but here, the novelty of it. Athens, full of idols, verse 16, an amazing cake mix of extraordinary belief systems. Verse 19, 
the Areopagus. They come to the Areopagus because the philosophers invite Paul to debate with them there. When I was uh, once at uh, the Parthenon, I said to the guide, could you show me please, where is the Areopagus? And she said, just down there, that lump of rock. Well, I went down there as fast as I could because I had to see this place. By the way, if you ever go up there, take your shoes off. You have to go up in bare feet because it's very slippery rock. You'll easily fall and break a leg. But I got up there and I thought, this is where Paul then met with those philosophical people. Uh, so verse 19. Yeah, it was the main debating uh, centre of the whole of Athens. Verse 19. May we know what is this new doctrine you've brought us? We've never heard it before. The novelty of it. Completely new? Yes. That is happening today in a great part of the West now. In uh, England, especially in the cities, we find that there's a whole bunch of graduates from the universities who know nothing about Christianity. My son Timothy is a professor in your uh, university uh, in Rhode Island, Brown University. And he says, not only there, but also when he's lecturing in England, that uh, if he refers to some kind of biblical concept, something that many of us would be well versed in, they have no idea what he's talking about. They don't know where it comes from. Many of the quotations or the stories of the Bible, they do not know. Quite new. There's a big store in London. I won't mention it out of tact, but I've been in there. And I remember a friend of mine went there to look at their big book centre, a huge book centre. And then there was the religious section of the book centre. There was books on all whole mass of different beliefs and uh, strange ideas. And he said, may I see the collection of Bibles here, please? Ah, they said, we've not got a stock of Bibles here. That is dark, it's London. How could that be? Well, it's because we're moved, moving further and further into a kind of new pre-Christian age. We're not there yet. The wheel hasn't turned full circle. Who knows that a mighty revival could still hit the whole of the world. In many parts of the world, there is a great revival going on. Africa and in parts of Asia and in South America. But in the West, generally, well, we're moving. There's bright spots everywhere, wonderful bright spots. And who knows whether there might not come a mighty revival. But for many people still, it's new, completely new. That gives us our opportunity. Because we meet up with people who've got little baggage left from the church of old. They've not got any unpleasant memories or boring ideas or sermons. They come to it completely fresh, many of them. That's happening, I'm sure, in America. Certainly it's happening in Britain. So that when Paul, the apostle, says, I see that in every way you are very religious. I find an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What you are worshipping as unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And that gives us our opportunity as well. Something new that they've never heard before. Actually, your great preacher, Billy Graham, when he was preaching years ago in Addison Square Garden, in that great mission of his, he then ended up at Times Square with 120,000 people turned up to hear him. And he took this very passage and he said, I am going to proclaim to you this unknown God. And then instead of referring to the heathen altars, he referred to the cinema screens around Times Square. His first choice 
was The Ten Commandments, that famous old film. And that gave him a wonderful jumping off point, how God wants us to live in this way. Then the second film he pointed to was called The Walking Dead. But that was a brilliant choice because he was able to talk about how in our world today there are people walking around, living apparently normal lives, but actually spiritually dead. No idea of prayer, the Bible, Jesus, the gospel, the cross, no idea. The walking dead. The third cinema screen that Mr. Graham pointed to it was entitled The Lonely Man. And that again gave him an opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ, the person who has split the dispensation BC from AD, who dominates all of our life in charge of the universe, and talked about him, the lonely man who stands alone in history. And then the last uh, cinema screen that Mr. Graham pointed to uh, was again an opportunity to help those people when he talked about Love in the Afternoon. That was the title. That gave him an opportunity to talk about the cross. Four cinema screens. What a brilliant way for an evangelist to address a crowd of 120,000 people. Well, that's what Paul was doing here. The, un the unknown God, yes, indeed. And the, not the sheer novelty of it. Secondly, the audacity of it. Chapter 17, verse 7. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that another king has come. So in chapter, uh, earlier in the chapter, the cry goes up when they're settled at Jason's house, this second house group, home group in all of Europe. Even one house group was enough to threaten that city. Just one. And then the cry goes up. They are defying Caesar's decree, saying, another king has come. Another king. The audacity of it. Well, of course, that happened in Herod's day when Jesus was born. Terrified at the thought. Another king? Or Jesus' trial. Oh no, said the accusers, no, there's only one king, and that's Caesar. Well, Paul and his friends here were bold enough to think that that whole collection of other deities, Mithras, Serapis, Apollo, Jupiter, the whole lot of them had to step aside because there's one person only, Jesus. He's taken all the space. The rest would have to go. That, uh, that took boldness to do that. Of course, it meant that they were risking prison. So when you're here today, as I often do, some of our church leaders saying, well, of course, now today we live in a, a post-Christian society. I think, rubbish. I think it's, it's more exciting than that. Much more challenging and exciting and interesting than that. We are living now in a new pre-Christian society. That gives us wonderful opportunities. And then when people say, we're living in a very pluralist society, I think to myself, don't they understand? Athens was far more pluralistic than anything we know today. Far more. And they took it on. They took it on head on. When I think of Paul there, standing at the Parthenon, you know, at the, at the Areopagus, the Parthenon was just behind him, looking as beautiful, shining, pure, as though it had been carved out of marble only the day before, instead of 400 years earlier. And of course they began to laugh at him after his sermon was over. Oh, there were some who did respond to Jesus Christ's message that day. But there were some 
they jeered at him. They thought it very funny. Look at that, we've got the Parthenon. They might not have laughed so much had they known that one day the Parthenon itself would become a Christian church. And a church it remained for a thousand years. Now, of course, it's just a collection of rubble. But uh, in those days, well, it was the great place to be at. Not that the possession of a building is of any great consequence, actually, in the end. It's what's happening to the mindset of millions of people that really counts. And here is Paul and his, and his companions. They're taking on a continent. So, Europe, what's it like today? Paul, Europe. I'm part of Europe. It looks to me as though Europe has got a good chance, now that it's ditched its Christian legacy officially, it's got a good chance of turning back to what it was in Paul's day. A collection of atheistic, competing, heathen tribes. That's what it may well become. And we can start all over again with Europe. When I think of, of people like John Bunyan, that man who those hundreds of years ago in Britain went to prison for 12 years for preaching in the, in the open air, in the public. He went to prison in Britain for that. During it, of course, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, honoured today, but Bunyan was one of our prisoners. 12 years. And Paul and his companions, what are they like? Well, the sheer audacity of it, they come straight in to Athens. No apology, no saying, we must, of course, try and listen to these people very carefully. We'll try and be on the receiving end, and so just keep listening. No. They've done their homework, of course. Paul is even able to quote one of their own people, one of their own poets, back to them. He'd done his homework, but he's not here to listen. He's actually there to proclaim. It's when there's proclamation going on in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ from the inerrant scriptures and the cross that stands supreme, we can expect that to be a response. We can expect that to happen. Paul and his companions, they're doing that very thing. So, the novelty of it, the audacity of it. Thirdly, the necessity of it. I mean, it's a bit obvious to say the necessity of it when we're talking about the Christian faith, ladies and gentlemen. But Paul is aware of what is happening to Greek society at that time. The crumbling of existing structures, the crumbling of such worldview as the, existed in that time around Europe. I remember once I was talking at a, some kind of party, uh, informal party, evangelistic reach-out time, and the man came up to me and started criticizing me for my, my views. Has anyone ever done that to you? Of course they have. What do we do back in a turn? What we should do is to then question them on their views. Oh, can, so I said to this man, oh yes, I'm still trying to improve my own understanding of things. Now I said, what's your alternative? He said, what, what do you mean? Well, I said, uh, describe, your, describe your own world view. Oh, he said, I haven't got one. Oh, I said, come on. I said, every man, woman and child on this world has got a world view. Everyone has some perceptions to what the meaning of life is. So what do you believe? He said, I'm an atheist. No, I said, I'm not asking you what you don't believe. I'm asking you what you do believe. 
about life on this world and its meaning. At that point, she began to sound extremely shaky. We've got to do that. We've got to do what Paul did. Challenge the existing worldview. And ask, what do you believe then about life on this world? We can do that, and he did that in this passage here. So the inadequate philosophy of life that was then pervading all of Europe was already crumbling. Paul takes advantage of that. The crumbling morality? Yes, because there was more religion in the poets of that time than there was in the gods of Greece. Far more. People knew that. These people on stage uh, would, again, a boy would, would be heard on stage to be acting the part of a, of, a, of a person who didn't believe and saying, well, why shouldn't I behave like Zeus? I like to behave like Zeus. Zeus was a god of immorality. It was all decaying. Redemption, there's no thought of how do I get forgiven? That's the big question to ask anybody of another belief system. How do you get forgiven in your beliefs? I know the Bishop of, uh, of uh, Egypt. He's a good friend. He's a courageous man. And he told me that across the whole of Egypt a newspaper campaign was held one day to inquire of people what is your biggest desire in the whole of life? Of course, that's a largely Muslim country. This was a secular campaign. The questions, the answers came pouring back in. And the top answer of all was to know how I can be forgiven. More than family, more than success, more than fame, more than anything else, how can I know that I am forgiven? Well, that was so in Europe at the time of Paul the Apostle. How can I know that I am forgiven? And then, what about death? There's no answer to that, to that question. Guesswork is over all, said Euripides of old. Guesswork. Then Paul and their friends come in, they say, oh, we don't guess anymore. Come along. Now the catacombs of ancient Rome, those early Christians were, would draw little pictures of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got something to say about all of that. So, we're very grateful for Paul the Apostle showing us the way. We've got a, an atheist in, um, in England, Richard Dawkins, and when he was asked about the purpose of life, he answered, the progress of DNA. That's the purpose. That's pathetic. Who's going to listen to that? Who's going to be attracted by that? So the church structures and the committees on the whole, they can't really do it. It's a question, really, of us, the witnesses of Christ, doing our part. Augustine said that of old. One loving spirit sets another on fire. That's how it's done. So when Stephen, the great apostle and follower of the Lord Jesus, was the first martyr and died, that was the trigger point for a great persecution. The persecution was, in a sense, a blessing because it meant that the disciples were scattered around the Middle East. And they took the message of Christ around those 58,000 miles of Roman trunk road and so in that way the message spread. It's up to us. It's not so much to the, the clergy or the bishops who should be doing that. They've got to do their part. 
But actually, it's the people of the Lord who do it. The novelty of it all, the audacity of it all, the necessity of this particular exercise that we read about in Paul the Apostle. And fourthly, the universality of this. So we come to the crunch bit, really, in verse 30 and 31, when he talks about all people everywhere. Those are the ones who've got to hear this message. He's talking about a day when God will judge the world by the man, one person, that he has appointed. Verse 31, he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. One person, ultimately, that we're talking about. One person we bear witness to. Sometimes people say, I can't see where Jesus fits in. Has anyone, anyone ever said that to you, I wonder? I can understand God, they say, about God, but I can't see where Jesus fits in. A good answer to that was given by that great theologian 1,600 years ago, Athanasius. He said, the only system of thought into which Jesus Christ will fit is the one in which he is the starting point. That makes a great deal of sense to us here. The starting point. You've got to start with him. If we can't start with him, well, then we'll be like the man who... Well, I was putting on my shirt this morning. If you've done this, you put on your shirt, starting with the wrong button. Has that ever happened? And somebody might say, well, it'll probably work all right, all right if I just go on do it. No, it won't work out. It'll never work out. And those who try and have some kind of edifice of understanding about life, and don't start with Jesus Christ, they will always be in a muddle. They'll never get it straight about life. There'll always be a puzzle, a certain puzzlement taking on. Once Christ is at the centre, and at the start, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1, we start with Him. If we start with Him, nothing can be seriously wrong. Not really. So, some try to reduce the Christian message also to a basic minimum. What's the basic minimum we can have about Jesus Christ? And if they start going on that exercise, you end up with something so feeble that nobody is going to be bothered to find out more about it. Friends, these are very exciting days in which to live. Wonderful days. There are days of a new pre-Christian era. I was born years ago in East Africa and it was quite different then for me. Of course I had Bible story after Bible story night after night. I was raised on Bible stories and that meant that I had a very secure and wonderful upbringing under my godly parents who were missionaries there in East Africa. They were pioneer missionaries in a place that was just riddled with witchcraft. And they pressed on. They didn't have to do any debate with the witch doctors. Nothing like that. They just preached and preached the cross. Now when you go back to Kabari in East Africa where I was born, there's a big Bible school there now. Places changed. 
But there's always struggles. Of course there are. Always battles. Each generation has got to work out the same battles for itself and overcome these challenges that come our way. Once you, because people forget. But I was brought up in that wonderful atmosphere. My call came to serve the Lord when I was seven years of age. Sitting on the veranda of our little missionary home with Mount Kenya there in the background. We lived on the lower slopes of Mount Kenya and the discussion was going on at the breakfast table. My older brother and my younger brother were both talking about what they were going to do when they were grown up. My older brother said, I'm going to be a doctor. He was then about, he was then about eight years of age. And he became a doctor. My younger brother chipped in very quickly and said, I'm going to be a businessman, like my uncle Anstis, and make some money. Which he did. Then they turned to me and said, what are you going to do? I couldn't think of anything. I thought, oh, um, I started fidgeting. And my mama stepped in. She said, I wouldn't be surprised if Richard became a church minister one day. I said nothing. The conversation changed. But in my heart I thought, that's it. That's it. I've never had any other idea since then. So I got my call through my saintly mother. Most extraordinary. Oh, Billy Graham helped me greatly when I was a teenager, listening to him and thinking I've never heard preaching like this before. And it was like a drumbeat in my head. You are going to be doing something along these lines for the rest of your life. That was a confirmation. Friends, I hope you've enjoyed this little, little exposition. It's very sketchy. But there are exciting days for us to be in facing a new pre-Christian era. Let's just pause for a minute and see if there's any observations. Otherwise, I'll just go on talking. <laughs> I'll give you a chance. What I used to do in All Souls, where I used to go around, I used to go like this. There's somebody at the back there. Why do you think this secularization is occurring? Do you think that movies and some newspapers and other aspects of our societies are, are bringing it about, uh, feeling no need to be repented, repentant about anything? Or how do you sort out the causes of the changes that have occurred in Europe and are occurring more and more here, particularly in the Northeast and West? Yes. Thank you very much friend for that question oh you've asked a huge blockbuster question so how is it all happening like this I think I, I don't like to criticize Germans because um, we used to have plenty of Germans in our congregation at All Souls in Langham Place London but there was a great burst of German theology critical theology that came pretty well at the turn of the century actually before the turn of the, of the 20th century. It's been going on for a hundred years. And that was deeply critical of the Christian faith and of the Bible. And plenty of people, because they weren't quite versed enough in it, they bowed to it and they caved into it. This German critical theology, people like Schleiermacher and a whole lot of them, I did them all at college. Um, we had to battle our way through them as well. But that sowed the seeds quite a lot as to... Um, to undermine the Christian belief. That then trickled its way through the universities, trickled its way into the churches as well, trickled its way into the schools, 
And that's part of it, only part of it. It's also that people do forget so soon. The church, unfortunately, many segments of the church caved into this theology. And so that was, I think we have to say, was part of the reason. So then, of course, the newspapers and the press and all of that, as you say, picked it up, and the television and so on. Uh, that's in a rather a short answer to, to what you're saying. But it's actually what is happening, see, again and again, we must ask ourselves, what is happening to the prevailing worldview? Now, there was a stage when in Britain, certainly, the, the prevailing worldview was, deep, was Christian. Much of it still is. Much of it still is. But a lot of it is crumbling, and certainly in Europe today. But it began, I'm afraid, with... And then, to, again, just part of my answer is we're very thankful for the hymn writers. Because when that German theology came in, which was so critical, uh, many of our theologians weren't up to answering it. Not really. But the hymn writers kept going. And so those hymns saved vast segments of the Christian population in the world just by the hymns. So places like Africa uh, and Asia and South America, those hymns saved uh, a lot of the Christian world from caving in. And we are very grateful for that. The hymns still do. Not much you can sing about if you're, I'm afraid, somebody doesn't believe in the, in the scriptures and yet tries to write a hymn. Have you ever seen such hymns? I've seen some of them. They're hopeless. Nobody ever sings them. <laughs> Over there. Dr. Bees, how did you become associated with uh, Beeson Divinity School? I'll tell you what happened. I was thinking about it in bed this morning. What a wonderful thing it was that uh, the dean of, the, of Divinity School, Timothy George, came over to Britain and uh, with some of his colleagues. And they, had a, they set up a, a, a kind of debating day, a study day. And because they were in our parish, they invited me along. And I came and I told them the story of my grandpa's conversion. Grandpa was a 14-year-old in 1882. And your D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was in Britain at that time on a whirlwind campaign and came to Plymouth. My grandpa, youngest of 12, he was the only one of the family who went along to hear D.L. Moody rest of the family didn't go. We think it was the parlour maid who took Grandpa along, because in those days, if you were from a respectable kind of professional family, you had to be escorted if you were 14 years of age to anything. She came with him, and he listened to D.L. Moody preaching on, Where art thou, Adam? And Grandpa made his decision and stood up with 56 others to make his response to Christ that night. And he wrote a letter which we've still got in the family. And I quoted all this, you see, at uh, Beeson's School of Divinity study time in London. Uh, and the letter went, My dear Evie, I'm I have some good news to share with you. Last Tuesday, she is 26th of September, 1882. Last Tuesday, I went to hear uh, Mr. Moody at the Drill Hall, and there I was saved. He was speaking on the... Ninth verse of the third of Genesis, Adam, where art thou? So that started off. And I told this to the Beeson friends. And then they gave me a little model of D.L. Moody, this little bust which they brought with them. So I've still got that. 
Uh, and um, one thing led to another. Uh, just friendship, really. It's just friendship. A bit later, they invited me along to do a pastor's course there, to do a pastor's a Bible school there. And that was wonderful. So one thing led to another. Thank you very much. But it's, it's again, it's friendship around the world that causes these things to happen. Yes, sir. This may be too broad a question for which I apologize in advance, but you talked about the, the inimical criticisms of the German theologians at the beginning of the century or the, uh, as, with respect to Christian theology. And I'm wondering, can you sum up what was the criticism that they made and why? <laughs> yes, thank you very much. I don't know if I can properly sum it up, my friend, but I've read, of course, much of uh, these German theologians. Basically, they were unbelievers. Basically. So they were getting into places of teaching, but not really believers in, in the authenticity of the scriptures, not necessarily believers in the uniqueness of Jesus. So when a person gets into a university chair in that position, and they start then trumpeting out their, their beliefs, or rather their non-beliefs, there will be some who are taken in by it, partly because they want to be taken in by it. They're happy to be taken in by it. They don't want to be reminded about the eternal issues or about the fact that one day we will face the judge of all the universe. They don't like that thought, and so they will try and gently lose it. The resurrection. So these things trickle their way through. We had a, a bishop in our country. Again, I won't name him, I think, but uh, he wrote a, a book about God, the Church of England, and doubt. And I remember reading that book and then listening to him in a debate, and I thought, well, I know more than you. <laughs> I had a, a tutor at the University of Cambridge when I first arrived there. He used to take me through my theology degree, my tutor, and he, I, as, he tore my essay to pieces. I said, this is pathetic what you brought me today. I thought to myself, I wonder if you had a quiet time today with the Lord. I wonder if you've read the Bible today. I bet you haven't. I, I thought to myself, I can't answer his questions. I haven't got the ability to do that. So I went off and had a very good game of tennis and practiced my volleys. And I thought, <laughs> but, uh, but deep down I thought, I'm going to find the answers to what this man is saying. I will find the answers one day, even though I can't at the moment. So I think it was, it's just doubt that comes in and uh, it trickles its way through the church. Then you get one or two people who come up as professors, like, I mean, Beeson. Beeson is wonderful. It hasn't just got a, a, an impact upon this area or upon this state. It's got a worldwide impact. We're deeply thankful for Beeson and schools of theology like it because they actually have got the answers. They've worked at it. So we've got now plenty of people who are able to give answers, including in Africa and in South America, who can give good answers now. So that again enables me to think, good, there's going to come a day when we shall have 
worldwide coming back to the Lord, I believe. Uh, as it will be hap- happening partly because people were ready with their theology to give good, credible answers. I haven't given a very good answer, but that's part of it. Richard, I just want to make a... I mean, I'm not sure that I have time. I have to get ready for another service, but to even hear your Dean. your answer to this, perhaps more of an observation than a question, but the pre-Christian era that I find so painful is taking place not, not only in the culture, but in the church. It's a pre-Christian era within my denomination. And what happened in Germany and Schleiermacher and his movement and the, the, the loss of the essential doctrine of the church becoming more of a universalist than a Trinitarian Christian perspective, I see happening now in our denomination and in our seminaries. And so when, when our seminaries are, are graduating clergy who would be preaching and teaching in our churches, then you see uh, uh, the foundation of the faith eroding. And it's just so obvious that it's happening again. What is happening in Europe is, is happening here. And again, let me say that I, I join you in thanking God for seminaries like, like Beeson. And it's a great privilege for the Advent to, to be a part and to be uh, one of their churches that are f- affiliated with them is Timothy George established a league of churches, mm. and the Advent is privileged to just mm. join that, those ranks. But I thank you for, for what you said and for your witness and oh, for your prayers. Yeah, thank you very much. We hold hands, don't we, around the world in this matter. And the wonderful encouragement, it seems to me, is that the Lord Jesus Christ does not lose hold upon his church. Even if part of the church has to vacate at certain times the official boundaries of it, and move into another kind of boundary, but it's still his church. And uh, so I take, fully take the huge dangers. And I, I must let you go, sir, but I, I remember being at a big conference in Jerusalem uh, called the Gathcon Conference, which was to engage Episcopalians and Anglicans from around the world. And I met one of your uh, bishops in this country. I won't say which one it was, but I said to him, what's happening in your diocese? Well, he said, we're in a real fix. He said, because my diocese say to me, half of them say, please lead the charge out of the Episcopalian church into another area where we can properly worship. And the other half say, don't leave us, please stay. So he said, so I said, what do you do then? What do you say to them? He said, I say to them, we're in a boat in the middle of a great storm. But Jesus is with us in the boat. Let's keep our eyes upon Jesus and we shall be all right. If we keep our eyes on the storm, it'll destroy us. And that was a wonderful thing from him. Thank you, Thank you very much.